HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Root 11 Potato Chips. Made with a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. To learn more, visit rt11.com. This week on Meet and 3, I'm about to go on maternity leave. This is Katie Mosman-Wadler, and before I leave you in the incredibly capable hands of Team HRN, we're rounding out Season 5 with a deep dive into the food rules, weird cravings, and overall hype about eating while pregnant. There are a lot of safe foods to eat, and we shouldn't be sort of assuming that just because something is raw that it's dangerous. I just found myself feeling like there was an alien piloting my body and brain and uh, totally changed the way that I ate. So was it the eggplant? Sure. Why not? I just don't know. Tune in to this week's episode of Meet and 3 anywhere you listen to podcasts. I'll be back soon with our newest and tiniest producer in tow. I'm Harry Rosenblum, and I love to talk with people about what they do and how it influences their personal food stories. This is a show about people, life, and food. If you're just tuning in for the first time, all the previous episodes can be found in the archives at heritageradionetwork.org. I'm thankful for listeners like you, and I'd love it if you'd leave me a review wherever you find this podcast. Happy New Year, everybody. It's 2020. This is the 14th season of Feast Your Ears. I expect to hit episode number 200 this year, so look out for a party or something. Today's theme the foods of your childhood. We all have foods that remind us of our childhood, those things that bring us back to sitting at the kitchen table or on the floor or at the counter and eating with family. For me, it's smoked fish. Saturday morning with my dad going to the local purveyor of smoked fish, getting a fatty slice of lox handed to you off the end of a knife. Going home, my dad would make lox, eggs, and onions. Anyone who grew up in New York in the 80s likely knows the sublime triumvirate that is the LEO. The time in second and third generation immigrant families from Eastern Europe was interesting. Looking back, there was a clear struggle in my house, at least between the gourmet, I say that with air quotes, uh, food of the time, olive oil, Pierre Frenet in the New York Times, Julia Child. This was working against or in concert with the old world foods, smoked fish, flanken, bialis, herring, pickles, and whatever it was is peasant food. It's comforting, filling, and nutritious. It helped our people make the long journey to a new country and find their way. My guests today carry on that legacy with their feet firmly planted in the new and the old. 
Oliver and Sasha Zabar grew up in their father's Eli's food, father Eli's food businesses. And if you live in New York, you've likely been to a store with the name Zabar on the facade, and it's clearly a family obsession. Thank you both for joining me today on Feast Your Ears. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Um, so you grew up in the food business, and now you are still in the food business. Um, Oliver, you started Devon on the Lower East Side in 2018, is that correct? Correct. Yeah, and then, Sasha, you joined the team after it was already... Exactly. I had been working for myself for a little bit and then uh, inadvertently came and, and joined, yeah. Cool, and so what are your roles there? Uh, so right now I oversee Devon, and I also oversee our other place uptown called Eli's Night Shift, which uh, opened about four years ago. Sure. So uh, between... And then, you know, we have Broom Street Bakery next yep. door, and then we have a plethora of other options in the company but my main focus is Devin right now and Got Eli's it. night shift yeah and okay. Eli's night shift is open incredibly long hours right Isn't yeah it so open, it, it opens in the morning as a cafe and then stays open as a bar yeah it's one of what we call our essential stores so it kind of has soup sandwiches salads during the day coffee pastries and then at four o'clock we kind of lock the doors pull down the shades switch everything around and turn into a full service beer wine cocktail bar wow that's a that, that's a lot. Yeah, it's <laughs> a I lot mean, to accomplish. Out of we're basically open twenty hours a day. Wow. Yeah. Um, and then tell me about Devon. And so Devon is a primarily a cocktail bar with really good bar bites. We kind of say on the Lower East Side. It's at two fifty two Broom Street between Orchard and Ludlow, um, and kind of is a was my idea. I live down there. I live on the Lower East Side. I've been there for five years. And I wanted to create a place that was very uh, a neighborhood place with really good food, good cocktails that you could pop in, have a bite, have dinner, bring your family, bring your friends, bring your girlfriend, bring your wife. Um, that was accessible to people down there. That's cool. So uh, it kind of has this mid-century, modern, kind of bright, colorful vibe to it. All the cocktails, kind of ingredients, like fresh ingredients that we either grow on our greenhouses, we get from the markets uptown. But uh, everything was kind of driven by freshness and quality. And and so, I mean, I assume the bread comes from Broom Street Bakery, right? Yes, it does. <laughs> um, and then do you also have a relationship with the vinegar factory, with your father's business there, and with Eli's? Yeah, I mean, everything in the company is tied in together. Right. We have a very interesting system where we transfer things throughout the place, but so every day we have the we order fresh ingredients from the markets, from the bakeries, from the commissaries. You know we use a couple outside purveyors sure. for dry goods, but primarily everything comes from the main market. Eli's. That's very cool. I mean it, it's neat because Eli's, in my mind, having grown up in the New York area, is such an uptown place, yeah. right? I mean Eli's and the Vinegar Factory both uptown. Um, you know to bring that sort of back to the Lower East Side, sort of former home of you know all those kind of like you know. Jewish peasant foods that I talked about in the opening. Yeah, exactly. And when we were looking for Devin, I, you know, I spent a lot of time looking in the area, kind of where I live, a little bit further over. And my dad probably hadn't been down there to, in that area for years. Kind of, <laughs> when I moved, he'd come visit. But um, yeah, he like, now enjoys being down there every day, kind of pops his head in. Cool. But uh, yeah, we have the real pleasure of working with the market. So you know, three o'clock, right before service at five, we run out of something, we, they forgot something. You're out of town. You grab it. You're oh, back wow. in time. Yeah, I mean that's a great support network to have yeah. for a business We're like very that. Lucky. Um, I love the idea of the kind of neighborhood place. I mean, I, I've lamented uh, with friends that it feels like New York is has for many years, and hopefully that's starting to change with places like Devon, been kind of at a loss for a lot of neighborhood places because I feel like a lot of places open up in a neighborhood and they gotta have they have to have a thing. 
and it's not just a place you feel like you could pop in on Tuesday night on your way home for a nightcap and then come in on Wednesday for like snacks. Um, you go because, oh, I want tacos tonight, or you go because you want this specific cocktail, or you go because you want this specific thing, and we don't have those places where, oh, yeah, I'm just going to go there three, four, five nights a week. Yeah, I mean, we saw that with Eli's Night Shift uptown, that the Upper East Side was really craving, was hungry for something casual, and over the last four years, we have people come three, four, five nights a week. They come for a quick snack on the way home. They come for a date on Friday, Saturday night. You know, they come for meetings. They come with family. And uh, I kind of say it was like the perfect time, the perfect moment, the perfect space. There's very limited casual dining options on 3rd yeah. Avenue. And uh, the neighborhood's taken to it, and we're so happy to be there. And it's great to have that kind of place where, and I assume that Devin is also kind of like this, where you are, are really a part of the fabric of the neighborhood, where people walk by and they wave to you or your staff waves to people and people all know each other in that way, which I feel like, you know, as people lament New York becoming all like, you know, banks and CBSs, like that kind of thing yeah. doesn't really exist in the same way. Yeah, I mean, we've become very friendly with everyone who lives in the building, yeah. the people who work there. There's a, a really big school across the street. You know, we do stuff with the teachers. Um, and there's actually a lot of industry people kind of living in that neighborhood right now. So it's, sure. it's great. They come in, then we go visit them. Um, we've created a really good kind of neighborhood feel for people who live down there to pop in. Um, Sasha, I wanted to ask, uh, I had asked ahead of time uh, for each of you to answer some questions. And one thing I always ask is, do you have a great story? Uh, and you mentioned your bread business growing up. Can yeah. Tell me about yeah, the, yeah, the yeah. bread business growing up. So, you know, like... Uh, both Oliver and I grew up in a family business, and we always uh, worked in, worked in the business. Uh, and when all our friends were going away on vacation uh, around Christmas and New Year's, you know, that's really when things got busy, and <laughs> sure. we had to kind of jump in. Um, and you know, we each had kind of like separate roles. Uh, but every summer, we we would go away. Um, we have a our parents have a, a house in in Provence, in, in a town sure. called Minerve, and we. Uh, would go away for, you know, when we were younger, th- three months. Um, and we grew, you know, we made jams and wines and olive oil. And uh, basically the, the, the property produced just tons of, of of great produce, which we would then maybe illegally, maybe, I don't know, you know, make <laughs> make jam, bring it back to the U.S. and sell it. Uh, sure. <laughs> but from a very uh, early age, um, we always made bread together uh, with, with my dad and and. We had a natural starter that we would feed, you know, wake up every year and feed it over the course of the summer, and the bread would get better and better. Um, and we had a, you know, a really old kind of uh, wood-fired oven, um, and we would burn kind of the, the dead vines from the vineyard, uh, which really gave an interesting smell and, and taste to the, to the bread. And so I, I don't know, I can't remember exactly what year it was or how old we were, but from a young age, we started making Oliver and I started a business making bread. There was one bakery in the village. It was really terrible. I mean, it was like, you know, you think of France as being this, you know, uh, home place of, of amazing, uh, bread. Right. Not and all the bread is great. Right. Raw, yeah. And it, not all the bread's great. Yeah. Uh, especially when there's no competition yeah. and, uh, uh, you know, the, the baker's an alcoholic and you're yeah. just like struggling to get it out. But, uh, so, you know, Oliver and I would, would wake up early in the mornings uh, mix our dough, let it rise throughout the day. We had a few different kinds we made. Um, and actually I, th- I think I, our like most popular item, we made like dinner rolls with like, uh, onions. It was a kind of a, almost a Jerusalem or Mish style bread. And we put onions on top and rosemary and, uh, you know, then Oliver would jump on the bike and, and deliver. And if it was a big order, we'd go together. 
uh, cash only, no credit, sure. uh, and no terms. Uh, but but it actually, you know, like for for how old we were, it did really well. And you know, the next the next year, we kind of began to ramp it up. And my parents basically said, like, this is you know, we're stuck to your baking schedule. Uh, we can't. <laughs> so do you went on else. vacation, yeah, to yeah. get away and to have this like you know. I, I assume that when your father got that property, it was like, okay, I'm going to take a little break. Yeah, like middle of nowhere, the craziness and yeah. the hubbub of New York and being in the food business through the holidays, right? And then you guys go and you start a business because so, you can't help it. So they basically said like, you know, we'll, we'll we'll pay you whatever you made last year to to not <laughs> to not work this year. Uh, and that was it. You know, it was a, a really it was a very interesting and good experience. Uh, both managing the numbers, managing the recipes, managing uh, inventory, uh, and you know, running a business. Yeah, I mean that's uh, I mean that's that's great. I had a when I was a kid, uh, we'd go to Maine every summer, and uh, I one summer I used to catch mackerel off like the dock, and I used to go fishing for crabs and stuff. And one summer I made a bunch of hand painted like hand drawn like flyers, and I put them all up up all over the village that I had mackerel and crabs for sale. I <laughs> tried to go into like the fish business, but it did. Does, it sounds like it did not work out nearly as well as your bakery business. We, we were lucky. We were yeah. lucky. <laughs> um, so I have to point out for people who are listening um, that you guys are twins, yes. right? Yes. Um, and I also have to. I, I feel like I have to point out, especially because it's radio, that you're both sort of wearing the same thing, and it, I'm guessing that was just sort of happenstance. Uh, yeah, I, just, I think so. <laughs> yeah, this, but mean, this is kind of our work outfit, like black, sure. you know, jeans, uh, you know, sneakers, and some sort of like cotton uh, sweatshirt. That sure, does, and, yeah. that's okay. Get dirty. Black jeans and, and gray sweatshirts fairly common. It's not yeah. like you guys are you know wearing identical yeah. t-shirts and like matching hats. Well, something. you spend enough time together, you start to you know just dress alike, <laughs> do the same hand motions, the same mannerisms. Um, so, Oliver, did you just like after you got out of school, did you go right into working in the in the family business? Um. More or less. So, it was in, so, you know, growing up, we grew up working in the family business, sure. you know, holidays, summers. There was a period where we had the place called the Amagansett Farmer's Market right. out in Long Island. And, you know, the first year we opened, we had to staff it. So we basically staffed it with all our friends, family, cousins, anyone who wanted to work. Uh, it was like wartime. It was like everyone, just, <laughs> everyone went to work. Um, and so we did that for a couple of summers. And then, you know, when I went to college, I came back after freshman year and... I said, I'm going to try something else, see if I'm interested. I worked for a film production company that, you know, after a summer I realized I did not want to be in film as much as I enjoy them. It was not for me. And I was going to school in Florida, and I ended up transferring to back to NYU to be in New York and started working for a company called The Butter Group, which uh, owned One Oak and a couple other places. And I'd spend the summers before... So I'd worked two summers before I'd worked for uh, Michael Stillman, who owns Fourth Wall, you sure. know, all the quality restaurants. And he kind of put me through this intensive training program where I ran around. So at the time was the Hurricane Club, being front of house, back of house, working in the nightclub. And I fell more into this night, the nightclub industry. Um, I kind of enjoyed, you know, the late nights and uh, just running around constantly trying to manage everything. Yeah, very high energy. Super high energy. Uh, I worked for a guy named Steven Greenberg, who famously owned the Roxy Roller Disco, yep. and most recently, 235th Avenue. Um, he had kind of mentored me and guided me and gave me a lot of information. And I met a lot of great people along the way, and I ended up at Butter Group, which, so I spent the summer working there in the back of house, kind of you know, learning the financials and kind of just how the, the things you don't see behind the scenes. And through a... Something happening downstairs. They had, there was a switch up, and I ended up moving downstairs to One Oak to be the assistant manager 
for what's supposed to be a couple weeks until the manager came back and ended up turning into about a year and a half. So transferred back to NYU, went to work for them, did that for a bit, graduated, kind of wanted to go work in more bars, cocktails, worked with Jim Kearns at Happiest Hour, and then kind of got the call one day from my dad saying, hey, I took over, I'm taking over space on 79th and 3rd. I want to turn to a bar. I have no idea what I'm doing. Uh, you, you need to come back and work for me. Cool. And I was like, no, I don't want to. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm really happy. Right, you're on your like, own. <laughs> yeah, like, this is so much better. Our relationship's so much better. <laughs> and I was kind of, I was moving out. I was, like, looking at apartments. And he was like, you know, I'll help you, but come help me. And I was like, all right. You know, but you got to, like, get off my back and, like, let me kind of do what I want to do. And yeah. he was like, whatever you want to do. Like, and that was turned into Eli's Night Shift. So it was a good decision to come back. Nice. Um, and then, Sasha, you then joined Devin after it was already open. So, so yeah. So so I'd, I'd been kind of off work. I'd basically always always worked for myself. And, and at one point... Um, I thought I wanted to be a, a cook or a chef, so I, you know, worked uh, for John George and and uh, and a few different restaurants in New York, and then basically fell into another business that became another business, and and um, and so I was kind of brought back to really focus on our wholesale bakery uptown, uh, but at the same time, when they had leased a space for Devin, they'd taken a little space next door with the idea of making it a bakery, and and uh, so when I came back. Uh, it someone needs to open it. Someone needs to you know get it up and running, and so that that's kind of you know we we began to work right next door to each other, and then it was kind of around that point that Oliver started to you know think about maybe making some of the changes that he had wanted to make when they opened, but things got you know falling behind or they didn't have the resources at the time, and um, and so it was kind of at that point that we started working together and working on the menu, working on the design. Um, and, and making the changes, you know, that, that I think it's hard, you know, when you open a place, you, you think that's going to be the, you know, the final iteration and then, you know, six months in a year later, you know, there are so many things that you wish you you did. And and we were lucky to be able to kind of make those changes. Awesome. We're going to take a short break and hear from our sponsor today, which is Route 11 Potato Chips. And, uh, when we come back, I want to talk about, uh, you know, growing up in New York and some of your favorite places to visit. This episode is brought to you by Route 11 Potato Chips. From the moment Route 11 dropped their first batch of chips back in the early days of 1992, they understood their destiny as a high-quality producer. Instead of succumbing to the frenzy of mass production, they took advantage of their small size and made chipping a personal art form. The payoff was immediate, an incredible potato chip. With a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. In this world of uncertainty that we live in, Root 11 Potato Chips believe comfort food can be just that. Know where your food comes from. To learn more, visit rt11.com.
Welcome back to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum. If you're just tuning in, my guests today are Oliver and Sasha Zabar. Uh, they, their father, Eli Zabar, uh, owns Eli's and the Vinegar Factory, and they run kind of all together as a family. Uh, those businesses, along with Eli's Night Shift on 70, 79th and 3rd. Uh, and then also uh, Devon, which is downtown on Broom Street, and Broom Street Bakery as well. Before the break, uh, we were talking about just kind of some uh, some family stories, how the how Oliver and Devin, uh, Oliver and Sasha ended up uh, working together uh, at Devon, and I want to talk a little bit about New York. Um, you know, we all you know I, I mentioned it earlier, and I feel like it's a constant refrain in New Yorkers. Oh, New York is changing so much, but New York is kind of always changing, right? Like it's always in flux. It's a different city than it was when I was growing up. It's a different city than it was when my mom moved to. My mom lived on East 4th Street in 1964. Uh, you know, totally different, totally different place. Um, I'm curious to know if there are places that you guys, like, love that are still, like, hidden gems in the city from your childhood or places that have gone away that you wish were still there. Um, you know, it's, it's I, th- I think you're, you're right um, about uh, kind of, you know, New York is changing, but, it, but it's always changing and... and you know, the, the piece that kind of scares me the most is, uh, you know, definitely in certain, in certain areas of New York, you kind of, um, you know, you you see, like, what I call, like, the rise of these, like, corporate restaurants. Sure. Uh, these, like, monster, 10,000 square foot, you know, especially, uh, you know, like, Greek-style Greek, Greek style restaurants. Mm. Uh, they're very clubby and, and just feel like they're made for, like, kind of expense account type dining. Sure. Uh, and... Um, but in terms of like places that I really love, I mean, there was a place in Brooklyn called Franny's that yeah. was not here when I was growing up, but sure. for a moment, uh, I really thought was, you know, a, a great restaurant. Yeah. Um, and places that are kind of, that I've been going to since I was younger. Huh, let me, let me think about that for a second. Sure. Oh, you have anything, <laughs> you have anything uh, ready to go? Um, I think, you know, we used to do like a Sunday night family dining out um, and we'd kind of read with the New York Times or what was going on and kind of dine out. Growing up, I think we really ate within our own business. Yeah, sure. uh, I mean, you guys had a lot to eat. My wife and I, you know, used to used to have the Brooklyn Kitchen. I mean, my wife runs it now as a cooking school, but we had it as a food business. And, you know, we used to I mean, almost all the food I ate. I mean, I I don't think I went grocery shopping in like a so-called regular grocery store for the entire time we had that business because it was always either something we wanted to try that someone was working on in the business or to be perfectly honest, stuff that was going bad (laughs) that we just took home and ate. Yeah, I mean, there's always an ongoing joke amongst friends that, like, my dad's never been to a grocery store that wasn't his own. Right. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I mean, just in New York, we would go out a lot. You know, I remember going to um, April Broomfield's Fish Restaurant before, which was in the Ace Hotel, when it yeah. was kind of on this, like, dark strip of downtown. Um, but we were really lucky enough growing up to travel a lot and go to these restaurants that were kind of destination places. Sure. Um, on the beaten path, off the beaten path. I remember as a kid going to Obuli, which was an amazing experience. Wow. But all our vacations were like food focused. Sure. So why in New York we ate at home all the time? Right. When when we left New York, we would eat out a lot. Um, actually, I I forgot, but growing up there was a diner uh, two blocks away from where we lived called Jackson Hole. 
Um, and there was a you know a few in the city, but this one I th- was really kind of uh, like the neighborhood spot. Sure. And ironically, uh, they went out of business, and um, we ended up putting uh, an Eli's Essentials slash uh, Eli's Wine Bar in there. Oh, really? Um, and you know, like there are things on the menu. We we do a brunch there that kind of uh, an homage to Jackson Hole, like the oh, pancakes cool. and and. Um, and what I had one more I, I forgot. I didn't oh. realize that Jackson yeah. Hole was like a was like I guess must have been a small chain, right? Yeah. yeah. Because there is still one. The other day I was in Queens. In Queens, yeah. exactly. And there's still one By right JFK. on the approach. Yeah. 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 Um, and then the, you know the other place which is not a secret, but but Patsy's Pizza on on One Eighteenth, sure. uh, which has been there forever and is you know cash only, and it's like a, you know a dollar fifty or dollar seventy five a slice, yeah. and uh, like you know I try and go there at least once a month. I do think that Franny's though is probably the f- one of the places I can remember that really blew my dad's mind. You know, everything on that menu was great. He would go out. We'd go out there. You know, sometimes every Sunday, every Saturday, he would talk about it to everyone he ever met. And then you know they they moved to the bigger location and it kind of lost its steam. But that original Franny's on Flatbush, the tiny tiny one, when you walk in, the bars right there, the little backyard, it was just like a magical place, especially in his eyes. Yeah. So, uh, Oliver, you said that if you could have dinner with anyone, it would be your grandfather. Yeah. Um, so, we, our, our grandfather who started the original Zabar's, Louis yep. Zabar, um, he passed away when my dad was six oh, so wow. in, the, in the early 1940s. And uh, my dad has this great line that he's used before in interviews that they say, if you could have a dinner party, who would, who would you invite? And he says, his, grand, his father, his grandson, and his great-grandson. And I always kind of kind of reminisced with me, and I always thought that was a great group of people to have. And sure. considering we never met our grandfather, and he yeah. knew him very little, but uh, you know the guy started Zabar's, which turned into such an iconic food yeah. eatery. Uh, just kind of would love to pick his brain on figuring out how he got into the food business and how he kind of started and grew it. Yeah, growing up uh, sort of within Zabar's, and I don't want to make this interview just about your dad, obviously, but I'm curious because you guys were there, right, as kids. Um, you know, I definitely, I get the sense that one of the things that your dad really managed to do was to bring what sort of Zabar's had done. And Zabar's was very much what I consider like Jewish immigrant based food, right? I mean, bagels, bialis, smoked fish, pickles, all those kinds of things. And then, but at, you know, at Eli's and at the vinegar factory, you know, it's those things, but then it's also Italian and French olive oil. It's the preserves you're talking about you guys were making. It's bringing in all of these sort of things that I feel like started in kind of the 70s and 80s to come to America and become what we now has expanded into a huge business of gourmet foods that now is going even further afield, right? Now, it's not just the European stuff. We're getting stuff from South America. We're getting stuff from Africa. We're getting stuff from Southeast Asia. Southeast Asian flavors are getting huge. And I feel like that's all embodied in there. Was that something that you were aware of happening growing up in the business? I think uh, like people don't realize, especially uh, like in, in New York right now, but uh, like in the 70s and 80s, there, like there wasn't Whole Foods. There wasn't Trader Joe's. <laughs> right. Um, and Christides and Associated. Right? Yeah. Was the... Yeah, exactly. And, the, you know, there was a fairway on 120th. There was about Ducci's downtown. Um, there was a bars on the Upper side. And, um, and, then, and then when Eli kind of opened... Uh, the vinegar factory, or even, even before that e- EAT on Madison, um, it was kind of like revolutionary, yeah. uh, and it was a destination, and it did, like, uh, and people would drive there, park, fill up, you know, their cars full of, of uh, groceries, and, and go back home, and then repeat that, and 
Um, the food landscape in New York was a very different place. And when he first started baking bread in, in the 70s, you, you could, couldn't find, you know, artisanal bread. I mean, there was like some, you know, local uh, Italian bakers that, that maybe went back to, you know, early 1900s or late 1890s um, out, out in the Bronx or Arthur Avenue. Um, but there wasn't fr- French bread uh, right. as we know now. And, and that is kind of like, uh, you know, na- now everywhere. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, the food landscape has drastically changed, uh, you know, since since 1973. You know, my, yeah, my dad always says, like, he has the, when he was 18, him and his best friend from high school, they biked through France, which was almost, like, unheard of at the time. You know, they were staying in hostels. But I think eating his way through the French culture kind of changed the way he looked at food, the way he ate. And he came back to New York. He did a bunch of odd jobs, did other things. But growing up in food, he... You know, Zabar's wasn't carrying French salted butter, sure. French baguettes, these these hams. And I think he was just like, wow, this is incredible. And this is this is how I want to eat. This is what I want to eat. And then he would go back to France all the time and made a lot of friends of people in the industry. And then those people ended up becoming his purveyors that would, you know, back in the day, you'd put it on a plane, get drive it to JFK, pick it up at customs. Right. Um, and yeah, and, and really doing, I mean, and, and I think that's an important thing, too, for people to understand that, like, it wasn't, none of this stuff was easy. I mean, like the the hard work that went into finding the products, and then getting them to the United States, and then getting them from customs, and then getting them into the store. It's not like it is now. I mean, like global shipping now, you can go on your phone and you can get anything from anywhere, pretty much. I mean, there's some stuff that's a little bit tough to bring in, especially talking about fresh cheeses and things like that. But you know, if you are reading a blog post about some obscure Chinese ingredient, you can probably order it on your phone, right? Yeah, completely. I mean, I think that's. Um, you know, in the, in the beginning, people kind of like lamented the high prices at, at EAT, but what they didn't realize is that uh, you ju- you just couldn't find it, and yeah. and and the kind of the the pains and difficulties that he went through getting it getting it here and getting it to the case to you know kind of a, a sellable you know point uh, was incredibly difficult, and and like you said, I mean, you, you can go online now and, and basically get anything you want. And that's been an amazing experience. That's kind of you know, sure. you know, it's uh, the transparency and, and the the you know access that, that now exists. Um, but in the you know in in not, it wasn't so long ago that you you know you read about it and then you found it. Yeah. Uh, you know, you read about it in the New York Times, sure. and then they listed the stores that it was available at, and then you know you kind of went and found it. Yeah. Uh, and that's definitely changed. Yeah. And so so how does that influence? Um, the work that you're doing. How does that influence what gets served at Eli's Night Shift or at Devon or what you're doing at the bakery? I mean, I think we're doing making a big push to, if you enjoy something in one of our stores, how can we get it to you wherever we are? You know, mm-hmm. Sasha's been great. He got us on Gold Belly. He's kind of updated our website. Um, but we, you, we want you to leave the store and be like, how can I get that bread again? How can I get that right. burger blend again? And let's make it as easy as possible for you. So, and then we want to keep certain items where like, you can only get them at our places. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Also, like, uh, one thing that really makes all, all the businesses that, that we run and operate really unique is that we make everything ourselves. Um, you know, that we have, and I think a lot of people don't realize this, that um, almost anything that, that you buy at our stores or eat at our restaurants, it's you know, came through some sort of horizontal or vertical in- integration within the business. So whether that's the bakery, uh, the pastry, the prepared foods, the commissary, the, the greenhouses on, on the rooftops at 90, 91st Street. I mean, it's very, uh, you know, in, in the nine, early 90s when 
when our dad built the in the greenhouses on 91st, which was you know 22,000 square feet of, of growable uh, space, heated from the bakeries, so we didn't you know very efficient. Sure, it wasn't because you know we wanted to be you know ecologically friendly or or we wanted to uh, you know get get you know get ridden up for it or it wasn't because of a mission statement. It was because we couldn't find the quality of, of the produce we were looking right. for on a regular basis, and. Um, and so, you know, in the, in the age of like the crow nut and trying to like become famous for one thing or like hitting this home run that then drives traffic to your business, you know, we kind of take a different approach, which is that everything we make, we stand behind and is, you know, and has gone, you know, 20, 30, 40 years of, of recipes and, and improvements. And, you know, if you start with good quality ingredients, typically the end product ends up pretty good as well. Yeah. I think, I mean, I, I think the thing for me that is most important about what you just said is that the stuff really is made in in your businesses and so you know while i think there has been such a movement towards places like whole foods or even i mean even you know the steam tray lunch places in midtown right which i think of as kind of this kind of blanket sort of genre of place that has like miles of steam tray stuff um that stuff is all coming in already made basically from somewhere else and not to say that you can't have a system whereby some of that stuff could be really good coming from certain purveyors but by and large the people who are serving the food have no control over the manufacturing of that food um and so i think that is super important and super valuable for people to understand because you're right from a consumer level walking by on the sidewalk um you know you have salads in a deli case and so does the store next to you right they might also have salads in a deli case and it's like well how do i know the difference and so that i think is true i think with the, with the zabar and eli's name attached to it um you know that really says a lot yeah i mean i think one of our items that's a little bit of a sleeper that we make is our ice cream you know, we make 30 different flavors of ice cream sorbets, and we don't just rebrand it. We make it at our commissaries on 91st Street using different pastry flavors, different fruits, vegetables, anything we can kind of find. And sometimes they get turned into kind of one-offs that go into the restaurants, sure. but they're all packaged and put in the stores, and I think that's pretty rare. Yeah, I mean, also that you guys are manufacturing in Manhattan. Yeah. I mean, let's look at that. I think we're right? the only bakery uh, in Manhattan right now in the, on the island. Um, doing this production. Yeah, and, and one of the mi- things that makes our, our wholesale bakery so unique is that uh, we can get you fresh bread in, in 15 minutes, you know, 20 minutes. Like, you call wow. one of our sales guys and you yeah. said, like, my order didn't get here or I need, I forgot to order, you know, twice as much as I normally do. You know, we can get it there. Uh, and it's hot and it's fresh. And um, Yeah, that's amazing. It doesn't have to sit on a truck and yeah. make it through the Lincoln Tunnel yeah. from Jersey, right? Or come over the bridge from the Bronx on the cross Bronx and be exactly. stuck in traffic for four hours. Yeah, exactly. I got a call the other day from a, a chef friend of mine. And he was like, hey, last minute, I need like 300 small hamburger buns. Like, is that possible? I was like, yeah, of course. I was right. like, call our guy. Get it to you right away. He's like, perfect. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. I mean, and so those are the things that in the modern age allow a group of businesses like yours, I think, to really flourish. Yeah. Um, you know, because it's not just that you can pull it up on your phone and get it. It's that you can actually go there and get it and know that it's actually going to come even faster, um, which is interesting. I think we're, we're at a weird, uh, you know, I know the buzzword is inflection point, but like, I, you know, I think of it more as like a tipping point about like how much faster can people expect to get stuff? Right. I mean, Amazon's down to one day shipping for lots of stuff and or two like, hours or two hours if you're yeah. in a certain place. But but the two hours. But that's what I mean. Like the two hour thing is a little like to me, that's like a bridge too far because that's really only viable in metropolitan areas. 
right? Sure, you could get something to somebody in uh, Maine, for instance, right? We were talking during the break about, like, Castine. Yeah. There's no way Amazon's going to offer two-hour deliveries in Castine, Maine. They could offer next day. Yeah. It's going to be a schlep, but, like, they could. But so at a certain point, you're setting up these expectations that aren't actually deliverable. Yeah, and I, th- I think also... Um, it's probably like it's you know in New York it's very easy to to for no I don't want to say easy but it, Amazon can deliver a pack of uh, paper towels or uh, toilet paper or uh, you know any of, any of these kind of like every everyday items but it's hard to to deliver perishable quality ingredients yep. and um, and you know like one of the things that Oliver and I are really you know working on and, foc- and focusing on in, in the family business is kind of taking these processes that have kind of grown over the last 20 or 30 years and updating them to an appropriate level, which we can then look at the data and uh, really understand what, what, what we're making and what we're selling and what we're making money on and what works and what doesn't work and processes for rolling out n- new items or things that we did 20 years ago that we haven't done in 15 years uh, and really kind of u- using the best of technology with kind of this in, within this legacy business um, to improve it. Awesome. So, you know, as we as we come to a kind of a close here, like what's coming up in 2020? Like, what should people be on the lookout for um, from you guys, from Devin, from Nightshift? Um, I think we're trying to push a couple of things out there. You know, we have a gluten free bakery that called No Glue that most people don't know we're associated with. Um, you know, we're trying to maybe open a couple more of those. Um, you know, I did run into Chad Robertson of Tartine Bakery on the street the other day, and he did mention he'd love to do a collaboration with Eli Neat. on his health loaf. So uh, something interesting, kind of pairing two great bakers. Yeah. Um, as far as Devin, you know, we're just constantly doing new cocktails, new food. We have two great chefs in right now, two friends of ours from France, who are just pushing the menu in really creative ways. Um, and I think for us, just keep growing the company keeping everything to the original belief of fresh delicious and available yeah and i think uh um we're also we have a a restaurant on 91st uh eli's wine bar that i think we're gonna kind of take take it in a new direction and um and we are also you know we're we're, we're, the broomsheet bakery is is just kind of a always but so there's a, we're always doing something new down there, and, and I think we, we're playing around with a few new ideas that, that should be exciting. Yeah, I'm excited to check out these sandwiches. That you yeah, brought. yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, and what else? I'm forgetting it now. But uh, you know, we're we're always on working on on interesting things. Very there's cool. daily changes in the business. It's yeah. no one moves as fast as Eli. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, awesome. Well, uh, thank you so much for coming out to Bushwick and sitting down to chat today. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Thanks, everybody, for listening to Feast Your Ears today. You can find more online uh, about these guys at, what's the website for Devin? It's www.devin-nyc.com. Cool. Uh, and you can follow, you guys have Instagram as well? Yeah, the Devin's account is DevinNYC. You, know, you can find everything on Eli Zabar's website, which is elizabar.com. has links to all our different stores, our online business, to Broom Street Bakery. And you can follow the Broom Street Bakery at, on Instagram as well. Everything is just by the name. Yeah, cool. That brings you back Awesome. And you can find this show along with uh, lots of other great shows at heritageradionetwork.org on iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can reach out to me if you have any questions. You can find me on email, harry at thebrooklynkitchen.com. And you can follow me on Instagram at thefoodballer. Talk to you next week.
Feast Your Ears is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.